Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to another episode of The History of Being Black. I am your host, Eunice Elliott, and each week as you've been tuning in, you've been hearing me talking to black folks. It's a pretty simple concept. Oddly enough, it hasn't happened enough because it's amazing the stories that we have to share, not just with each other, but with the world. And the story that I have the honor and privilege to talk to you all tonight, you know, I'm always joined by thought leaders and provocative voices in our country. But this is a very special guest to me. So I live in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. And most people who have never been to Alabama or Birmingham specifically, when they hear Birmingham, they think about the civil rights struggle. A lot of times when people think about Birmingham, they think about the church bombing. And if you don't know the details of the church bombing, you still will associate Uh, a church bombing. And sadly enough, that is a big part of Birmingham's history, the country's history. When four little girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair died and were murdered September 15th, 1963 in a church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. Carol Denise's sister, Lisa McNair, is my guest today. Lisa, welcome and thank you for joining me on the History of Being Black. Well, thank you for having me, my friend. This will be fun. It will be fun. I can tell you, growing up in Birmingham, learning the history of the 16th Street Baptist Church, the civil rights story in in general, I never would have thought I would be friends with anyone so closely connected to that tragedy. And what's interesting about me cherishing you as a person and as a friend is most people are so far removed from those stories, like it was a lifetime ago on another planet. And to see you, my friend Lisa, and your sister sadly was one of the little girls that died in that bombing, our history is walking around every day. And sadly, a lot of our stories don't get told. Tell me about your sister, and then please also tell me about your earliest memories about your sister and and how you grew up in Birmingham. Okay. Well, thanks for having me, Eunice. I hope that I'm able to share some good thoughts today and people will learn some things. Uh, I am, my sister Denise was the youngest of the four girls killed in the bombing on that day. She was 11 and the other girls were 14. It was their freshman year in high school. So I was pretty terribly sad that that happened. But my mom and dad, uh, Denise was their only child. They tried to have other kids, uh, but had not been able to. My mom was never able to carry to term. You know, back then they really didn't talk about infertility issues, but it's a topic today until people can relate. So losing your child was bad enough, but to know that you tried to have others and you might not be able to had to be just crushing. But God is good and people prayed and they prayed. And almost a year 
year exactly to the day she was killed, I was born. And then yeah. four years later, my mom and dad had another child, another girl. And uh, so my sister, Kimberly, who lives here in Birmingham and is a chef. So growing up, that was my first memory, my oldest memory um, about Denise. So it's something that kind of travels with me all the time. There's this great picture of her in the living room, and I've seen it all my life. As uh, this person who's that close to me by blood that I never have gotten to know. You know, I've been to visit her gravesite any number of times, but I don't know what she looks like, how her, what her movements are. And um, to know that my parents carried that sadness forever, just kind of a sad thing. So I, but, and then it not be mentioned in all the history books as it should be is also another sadness to not share our story. That's just remarkable to me that even though you never met your sister, Denise, because when she passed away, she was 11 and you were born almost a year to the day. As you say, you're the result of many, 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 many prayers. That right. has to be some kind of pressure or something, right? Or what What did you feel as you grew up and you, your family is such a part of history? How do you process that as a child? Well, for the long time, I guess, you know, as a child, things um, have levels. And as you see more... You grow older, you see more. Like I, I remember, I don't. I was young when I put together. Okay, because we always did something on the anniversary of her death. I always knew it was September fifteenth, and then four days later is my birthday. And after a while, I was like, you started to think about it. Okay, so four days after that, I came like a year later, and I was like, wow, it was wow. just mind blowing, you know how daunting that was. And then learning that my mother had tried to have kids and couldn't, you know, so as you get older, what a, you know, like people have called me a certain baby, some kind of an angel baby. I think I've heard people say that when I tell them, I didn't even know that was a term. So it's daunting. And then, you know, you want to, there was a time when I didn't want to be here. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you can't off yourself because people pray for you to be here. Mm. And you were here. So so just over the years, me being that sibling that came after had its levels of wow, you know. Of and like you said, you get more wow as you grow up and start understanding and consuming all right. the time. As children, we're very selfish, right? Because mm -hmm. there's no other way for us to know how to be. Mm -hmm. I think about that divorce when I was a child. Well, I really only cared about my daddy and was I going to see him as an adult yeah. woman to have a different appreciation for my mom's relationship in the right. Right. There's no way I could have understood that, right? So for you right. exactly. to understand that as a child, and as you go through what normal people go through, the angst of growing up and challenges in life and, and becoming mm -hmm. your own person, how how is it that you feel like... Um, well, one of the things that, that I want to point out that a lot of people don't think about from that day in 1963, it still affects us today, not just historically, but when you say you as a person, Lisa McNair, you have made it a big part of your career and life to keep your your sister and the other little girl stories alive. Right, right, right. You know, I travel now. I've, I've got a business speak, Lisa. And um, so that's what I do, travel uh, around the country talking about Denise and the bombing, but also reconciliation and how um, life, ex what life experiences we had, forgiveness and how we can all come together despite 
any tragedies that have come to us. So that's like my life now. That's what I do. And I do that in honor of her. So uh, she's always been, but even more so now, a big part of, you know, my life and what I do. So it it, it is kind of daunting, like you were saying. Yeah, it's like um, that movie, uh, the idea of the butterfly effect, how one thing affects so many things that you don't even realize all come from this moment. And so a lot of people that talk about this day back in 1963 don't realize how much how many people's lives are still affected today because one of the little girl's sister uh, was injured and is still alive here in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And again, like I said, we just think it's in a history book It's one day a year. We acknowledge it and recognize it. But this is y'all's real life. Right, right. But not only our real life. And then that's another level that I came to know over the years, probably really in the last 10 or 15 years, people talked. So for so long, nobody talked about it. And so people have talked about her dying and what that meant to them. Kids who were teenagers or her age around that time, how they have come away with post-traumatic stress disorder from that because their oh, little yeah. friend died. Oh. Um, you know, I met a guy who had been a recovering drug addict for years and got himself clean. But he said one of the reasons he attributed that because he loved Denise. He had a crush on her. She was in his class. And when she died, it just messed him up. And what people don't realize is now something happens and the counselors come in and the school is closed for a few days. And I can no. The girls were killed on Sunday morning. Monday morning, everybody went back to work into school. As if nothing. When you say that, when you say that, even when you talk about going to school or having a crush, it like I think so many times when we talk about people in history, we don't talk about them as people. You know, I think I shared with you one time before we were talking that as a child learning about the history and, you know, you learn about slavery and you learn about this and that. But it wasn't until I learned the story of the four little girls as a little black girl in Alabama did I get terrified because I didn't know yeah. little girls could die. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that. That's really powerful when you say this, the PTSD that so many kids probably that are our parents and grandparents and colleagues in this city that grew up around that time. I don't even think right. about that until you just said that. Have some level of PTSD from being a child in Birmingham at that time. Right, because right. she will be would have been 69 this year. So wow. think about how many people you know who are in their late 60s or just turning 70. Wow. You know, and that, that stayed with them. So that stayed with them. What's interesting is the white people that remember it. I know the black people, I, I, you know, you would expect that, but the white people remember it and they remember being afraid as well. And that's really interesting. The ones that have talked to me or extremely saddened, some confused, like, why would somebody bomb a church? That's church. You don't mess with church. So that, the whole thing really affected people. When I speak to kids, you know, because you want them, like you said, make this relatable. When I speak to kids and, and I, if they're junior high school kids, I was like, how is anybody in here 11 or have an 11 year old sister? Is anybody in here 14 or have a 14 year old sibling? I said, those are the ages of the girls that their life was over. So what are you going to do with your life? You still have yours. What are you going to give to it? Because they lost their lives at that age and had no more to give. Mm. Oh, Lisa, you brought up white people. So, okay, fine. I will talk about white people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> I know you and I know you have a lot of white friends. 
Yeah, and your sister was killed by white people, KKK members, and your life has was pre, pretty much somewhat predetermined before you even got here, your life's work, your calling, and, and you chose to answer it. Um, you mentioned forgiveness. Talk to me about your parents and how they raised you to forgive white okay. people specifically, right? Yeah. Well, um, you know, that's just who they were as Christians. You know, I think a lot of black people are like that as Christians, two things really, it was forgive or hold an incredible amount of vengeance in your heart. But as an African-American in this country at that point, you knew you were probably were not going to get justice. So you either had to forgive or move on and not carry it because if you did, it would just consume you. And uh, that's what mom and dad did. But the blessing that we had in our lives is that daddy didn't go to 16th Street. He went to a small Lutheran church, maybe two, three hundred members of the church. And they were all black except for five people. The pastor, his wife and three kids were white. Pastor Elwanger, Joseph Elwanger was a pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church. And he was a white guy that had come from I think Selma. I'm not sure where he came from, but his father was a minister and fought for the rights of black people. And so they were all in with us. They were allies and friends and we were at their house all the time and we were at their house all the time. So it was an early lesson in that all white people didn't mean me harm. All white people didn't try to want to kill me and my family. And some of them really were friends and loved us. So I think that was a beautiful uh, thing that that happened for us to let us know that because it, it took the, the guard off. You know, that didn't mean we was cool with all white people because some of them were kind of scary and you kind of huh. worried about that. But it was a great way that they, you know, arranged. They, they didn't arrange that, but that God arranged that. So that happened to be our life. So you mentioned about holding a grudge or holding that, that burden in your heart beyond if you don't forgive and even when you talk about knowing that you probably weren't going to get justice for those four little black girls when the, I guess, criminal justice attempted a system until much later, much later, um, several members of the KKK were convicted and jailed before that bombing. But they were very old, right, when they mm -hmm. got and arrested. Yeah. And so we still go through this today, right, where black people are being killed and no one's being held accountable. So what would you say to us? We're currently going through this thing of needing to let go, but needing to hold people accountable and hold a system that's already broken somewhat more accountable. Yeah. How do we do I, the, I, how do we do both? How do we do both? You just have to do both. You have to do both at the same time. You have to go to the polls, register and vote and vote for the right people to be in office and pay attention to who's in office. Pay attention now from last November to the people you've elected in office and how they're voting on everything till the next time. Take notes because they work for us. So if they voting for stuff now like they are in Georgia voting on voter suppression things, remember that. And when that comes down the next time, you need to tell everybody like you the town cry. You remember the so-and-so? He voted for that, so we couldn't go to go vote. So you have to be on top of it. But then you also just have to have faith and pray and believe. I was on the plane yesterday, and they were I was watching the TV, and they were talking about the George Floyd case. And, you know, all of us are sitting on pins and needles. Are they going to convict that guy? That guy that we all saw with his knee on the okay. You know, it's okay. like thinking, I, I was just hoping that brother would just 
like today uh, when the trial started said hey never mind I could plead guilty I'll take whatever plea y'all are offering I did wrong I was out of order I was supposed to protect and serve and I did not do that you know but of course that didn't happen but you know there's that other part of me just like at the trials for the girls you're like please convict please convict please convict but it's part of you in the back of your head as a black person living in this country well they probably not gonna do that for us anyway mm-hmm. which is the non having hope part of it and we have to push that out of our, our minds but it's it's hard it's hard because we've seen this happen so many times like nobody would have told me that the Rodney King thing the first trial was gonna go like it went right. nobody believed that it was kind of like for like the first half hour after I heard that I was like huh I kept trying to change news channels because I was like well this one got it wrong surely, surely. come on come on you know, but it's just a fight. We have to keep it. But I think we're in a in a great place right now. I think the whole world is watching. I think a lot of people who hadn't been watching in this country are watching. I think a lot of white people are listening that hadn't been listening that didn't really think stuff like this was real is thinking it's real. And the young people, as long as they register to vote, are really powerful and really excited about it. So we just got to keep going like we're going and not give up and not faint and not lose heart. So when you say more people are listening, more black folks are talking, but yes, more people are listening. You've been um, most of your life telling the story of the four little girls, sharing your story. Uh, when Spike Lee made the movie, tell me about what was that for you and your family to not just say our family is recognizing this and, or maybe just the city is recognizing this amazing story um, tragic story. What did it feel to to see that story on the movie screen? I thought it was great. I mean, it put it on another national platform. You know, it brought it to the forefront again. I was so always so grateful to Spike for wanting to do that. You know, he'd written Daddy back in the early 80s originally, right after he got out of film school on typed letterhead paper, but he hadn't typed it. He hadn't handwritten a thing. And that letter's at the Civil Rights Institute. We framed it. Man, Daddy looked at it and was like, "Mm, that's not and he just laid it on his nightstand and over time he scribbled ink pens all to make sure pens work and it just kind of laid there but uh spike was you know he didn't give up and then in 96 97 he came back again and that was his first documentary and i think it was great that it got so much publicity over time uh and helped people to bring to the forefront about the girls and what was happening back then to a whole generation of people who didn't know. And it's out there now. People can watch it on Amazon Prime, Netflix, and HBO Max because it was originally an HBO production, even though it did appear in the movie theaters and stuff like that. So I I just think stories like that are so important because people don't know our history. All of our history is not in the uh, history books in schools, which is still tragic and needs to be changed drastically. That's part of what's wrong. And obviously the problem is the people, the powers that be that write textbooks don't include our history to minimize our contribution and to not let us see ourselves represented. But so Mm -hmm. many of our elders don't want to talk about the painful stories. And so that is, I think, the combination of the two. A lot of our elders don't want to talk about stuff they went through. They don't want to tell you mm-hmm. that story. And so our stories just sometimes just die away with the people who live them. Mm-hmm. That's why mm-hmm. it is so important on um, the work you're doing. So you're working on a book project, right? 
Right. Because Denise grew up in integrated uh, Birmingham and I grew up I mean, on a segregated Birmingham and I grew up in an integrated Birmingham, you know, I was probably one of that first generation who was able to move freely through the South as an African-American. And I always knew I was odd or different or stuck, stood out in what I was doing. My parents put us in predominantly white private schools. So nobody else black I knew was going and doing that. So we had a very different lifestyle. He was a politician. So we hung out with a lot of white people all the time, got to do things and go places that everybody didn't get to go. But, you know, had our own ups and downs as that went on. And so I'd always wanted to write my life story. So I did write, I've written a memoir. It's called Dear Denise, Letters to the Sister I Never Knew. So chronicling my life in letters to Denise. So I'm looking forward to getting that out. We said Black History Month next year should be the release date. So we're working hard to get that out and maybe be out before then, but that's the the date we're looking at. You know, I'm super excited about that project and reading it and supporting it. You mentioned, you know, the people and the experiences you've had. Your dad was a very well-known photographer and not just a well-known photographer, as you mentioned, politician, but you have the archives and collection of when I'm talking about Chris McNair, your father, and the pictures he was taking, let's say how many selfies I might take in a day or take pictures of my food or take pictures of my dog, the things that he was just taking pictures of would be pictures of Dr. Martin Luther King or Fred Shuttlesworth or John. It was just, that's just who he was there with. And that's what they were meeting. And you have those pictures. Tell me about the archives and the collection and the work you're doing to, to get that out to the public. Oh boy, you know, I've never had any children, but this whole project is like giving birth, Jesus, and it's like in my either ninth month, and you know, I'm starting to feel Braxton Hicks pains or something. I mean, but it's like, I cannot birth this baby. I'm like going on the 10th month and it's still in me. I want this baby to be birthed. It's exhausting. But, but it's I, so you know, much. it's so much in the archives. It's so much. Like, mind blowing, you know. Um, he had every, pretty much every negative he shot since 1962 in wow. files archived in a card catalog. So, but then there were about 10% of them that weren't archived for some reason. That must have been before he got Mr. White, who was his secretary, to come and do it. And so I spent the last three years having paying somebody to take all those negatives and the envelopes that they're in and inventory everything in an Excel spreadsheet. Because when I tried to sell the collection before or market the collection to people, people would say what you have. And you say, well, I have some of Dr. King, I have some of this, some of that. Well, how much is some? How much is what? I have, you know, all forms of black life. Well, what black life? So now I have everything documented on Excel spreadsheets. So we know. So you can sort by date, by event, by location, by time you know, and do that now. So the next thing is to try to figure out how to market it. And at first I thought I could market it in one big lump, but I think it needs to be broken down into black life here in Birmingham, celebrities, civil rights portion, um, Birmingham life where, you know, he shot black people as well as white people. And um, there were 
things called uh, progress shots. Like when the Civic Center was being built, he would go once a month and shoot a progress shots to show the pro- shots from last month compared to this month. There wasn't a digital camera or anybody like that. So they hired him as a professional. So the growth of our city is in those negatives as well. So it's a, a, an amazing collection, and I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> what to do with it. Anybody want to call me, email me, have some ideas, I'm open. <laughs> okay, anybody who's listening, they can help get all these car archives out and help Lisa market it. I've, I've seen some of the pictures and know what you're dealing with. And I'm like, I want to help you, but I don't want to give birth. <laughs> so I'm like, girl, let me know how that goes. But it's an amazing collection. Is there any, I mean, like you said, you have pictures of a lot of what the city was before it is what it is now here in Birmingham. But are there any pictures that just blow your mind that you actually have? The King pictures, the pictures of Dr. King, the civil rights movement, him leaving town, him with Shuttlesworth. And uh, those are really cool. Him doing different things that you don't see people with pictures of him leading a rally in the 16th Street Baptist Church and instructing, you know, the audience on how to behave when they go to marches, stuff like that. You know, it's just amazing. Then going through different ones of different celebrities that come. Jackie Robinson flew here for a conference and there's pictures of Dr. King and Jackie Robinson hanging out. Uh, Ethel Waters, who was a famous black actress early in the day, she came to Miles. Daddy was the principal photographer for Miles. So pictures of her arriving at the airport and stuff like that. Then it was like some cabinet pictures of Dr. King's eldest daughter and his eldest son must have been at a conference and daddy was there. And while they were standing around talking, he snatched pictures of the kids. And so just like amazing stuff. I haven't even had time to delve into the whole collection to see all the fascinating things. And then the Kennedys. It's some pictures of the Kennedys there. So I've got to go and pull that. It's just amazing. It's amazing. He was a principal photographer in this region for Ebony and Jet. So when Ebony and Jet needed something, they would also send him out to take pictures for them. I feel like from the day you were born until this day right now talking about it, you've had a lot of responsibility just kind of handed it to you. And so that's not lost on me. <laughs> so yes, Thank you very much. as the village, how can we support Lisa McNair to get this amazing... Pray for a girl. <laughs> and then like Spike Lee has, they're doing something with the Academy Awards. It's going to do, they're having a museum. And so they want to put pictures of Spike Lee's work. So they just reached out to us and see if we could put pictures of Denise in there, you know, that Spike Lee used in the movie. So it's always something going on with it. But probably once I get my book out and I've done all I needed to do for that, then I can focus more of my energy. I just don't have any energy right now to put toward it between getting the book out, making sure I book speaking engagements so I can eat and pay my car note, uh, Mm -hmm. and caring for my mom who has Alzheimer's and uh, is legally blind. So between those things and trying to sleep, I'm like, got a lot going on, so... Okay, well, why the, the sleeping? You probably just get rid of that, and then we can get this stuff out. Why? No, no, there's no sleeping. <laughs> Little naps every now and then. So tell me, <laughs> with the current state of the world, and like you said, people are now listening and talking in ways that they haven't in years, and you've been doing it the majority of your life. Does that kind of validate the work you've already been doing, and does it re-energize you or, or galvanize you to continue the work now that more people are listening? Oh, yeah, yeah. I just wish I could be everywhere all day, every day, you know. 
just got back from San Francisco speaking to their police department. Uh, that was fabulous. You know, I wish I had a gig like that every week, a couple of them every week. Um, I've spoken to so many places, businesses, colleges over the country, throughout the country via Zoom. So hopefully um, now I'll be able to do it face to face, but it might even be better. Sometimes I'll fly out of town to do this one, but I'll do Zoom on another one that's in another time. Because I think the, the time is ripe for it now. People are listening. If you look um, and the um, Birmingham Business Journal had the cover where all these people who are the new diversity and inclusion uh, officers, that wasn't even a position in most businesses. Now, every corporation practically has one. Um, so I'm trying to get on their list to have them bring me in. I think we're this is the time. If we don't do it now, we will miss it. You know, I've had some black people say to me, well, why I got to tell them about what they know? They should know. White people should already know. Why I got to share with them? I don't want to. They ought to know. Well, that's the point. They don't know. And it's our job to tell them. It's our job to share. Because there's a lot of white people who really don't, didn't realize all this was happening or they chose to be have blinders on and not see. But now they're asking. So we have to openly share what they don't know about our history, black history, uh, civil rights history, black American history, which is also all American history and share that with them so that they will not, History will not repeat itself. I think the ugliness that's come up in the last four years or so, a lot of it has come up and shocked everybody because we didn't know the history before that it looks like something else. Look, especially the voting rights stuff where they're, you know, oppressing the voting because so many people don't even know that you had to pay poll tax. You had to take stupid tests like how many bubbles in a bar of soap, how many jars in a uh, pit, jelly beans in a jar, little stuff like crazy stuff like that. And then this other voter suppression that's coming up now, that that has always been a thing. So the big picture is voting is our right and it means a lot. And people want to take it away so that we don't have a say. But if you don't know your history, you don't know and you don't understand that. Be you black or white and you have to learn your history. So this, I think this is a great time. I'm grateful to talk to anybody anytime, uh, fly anywhere, uh, Zoom anywhere, to share our story because this is important that we all know and start to come more together as Americans. You have a great and wonderful heart. I have told you before that, you know, I'm going to have to pray on certain parts of mine that you seem to have cultivated in yours. <laughs> you are a very loving, forgiving person. I do want to ask you this last question, especially in a place like Birmingham, when people meet you or, or maybe at a speaking engagement and they know who you are or people meet you and find out who you are, do you find that people tend to kind of engage with you like with kid mittens, like you know, like sympathetically or do people just not really, you know, because it is shocking that you're a young woman and that's your life and your family. And for us, it's black and white pictures in a book. Uh, I get a myriad of reactions. Mostly often I get tears. Mm. People had heard about it, heard about the bombing. It just been a story for them. But then when you, either I'm introduced to them or somebody introduces me to them, people cry. And they are just moved. And I think, like you said, it's like putting that black and white picture in real color with a real person. So I get that. And then some people are, you know, get that and then they move past and they want to know more. They want to ask questions about me, about uh, my family, but then about what's going on in the country. So they want to do that. So I get a bunch of uh, 
of reactions. You know, some of it's a little silly. You know, they kind of put me on a pedestal. This is my friend Lisa McNair. So they spend the next few weeks telling everybody, I know Lisa McNair, you know. And that that's, that's just, that's, I don't know what to do with that one. But I'm just like, hey, okay. But, uh, but it, it's interesting. It's interesting. As, as long as the message keeps going forward, I'm, I'm glad about it. Whatever makes the message go forward, I'm with. I'm down. And and I know that you are, and you have been a selfless warrior in the fight before it was cool or cute, and it was very personal, is very personal to you and your family, and you still took that charge and, and have affected a change. Please tell me, what can our listeners do? We always encourage them at the end of an episode, we want action items. We don't want people to just listen to what you're doing. We want them to feel like, hey, you can do something too. You mentioned earlier about tell stories, share the stories, tell the history and, and not feel like, okay, well, they should know it. Um, what What is something that just any regular person can do to, to be the change? Oh, I have a number of things, um, but I'll try to keep it brief. Register to vote. If you're not registered to vote, register to vote. So we're going to assume everybody on your show is registered to vote. Yes. Because make otherwise, that assumption. If you're not, if you have a friend, make sure they're <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And then if, you, if you're not, take somebody with you. The vote is so important. I think people real. I think if you've paid attention to the last election, they'd see how very important it is and how very important it is if you don't. That is what is important. But then if you're like, I'm 56, you got young kids, you know, somebody was, I was somewhere and somebody was saying, well, yeah, your kids need to vote too. And then they were like, yeah, well, I, my kids are registered. I think that's um, not a thought. They should be registered and you need to know. My mom and daddy took me with them to the polls when I was a little kid and you had to you go had to go in a little booth and check a lever and explain to me. My mama Helen that lived up the street would take off and drive people to the polls who didn't have cars. You know, she worked the poll station till she was in her nineties. You know, it was important that you vote. What some people don't know is that in order to be on a jury, you have to be a registered voter. So anytime, you know, we can have our say on what happens in juries, but only through being a registered voter. And then I hear people say, I don't want to register. I don't want to do jury duty. And I practically have to stop myself from slapping them. That's an important thing. You People need to stop poo-pooing that with their mouth and say, great, I'm going to be, I am serving my own jury duty this week. It's my, you know, civic duty to do that. So that's important. It's you having a, a event or something, have a voter registration table, figure out how to Register. That's so important right now. We need to really live on that. Since since that last election, 48 states had new voter restriction laws just since mm-hmm. November. Think about that. So mm-hmm. when you get ready to go vote, if all those laws go through, it's going to look different next time. And if you're not prepared and you're not listening, you're going to be off your game and you're going to be mad, but it's going to be too late. So we got to stay woke. Got to stay woke. If you if you white on here and you don't know enough about black people, if the only free people you know are white people, your best friends are white, people you go on trips are white, your person you tell your stories to are white, um, and the only black people you know is the one black person that's the receptionist at your job, or the lady mm. who cleans your house, or the janitor that cleans the bathroom, security guard at the desk, your your circle is too small. You need to get to know some people of color and you need to read some black books by black authors back in the day and currently watch some documentaries and things like that. Find some cool black people and learn for they know. White black people, when they come to you, educate them. It's going to be painful. 
but educate mm. them. They don't know what they don't know. I had a 60 some odd year old white woman ask me to take her and her family through the Civil Rights Institute here in Birmingham. And we got the, one of the first pictures you see once you go in the big part is a picture of Frederick Douglass. And she asked me, who was that? Mm. I did not know who Frederick Douglass was. We all know who Frederick Douglass was, but she yeah. had no, and she wasn't being funny. Right, but like, I'm saying, but even for black people, that's one of the black people that they told us about. One of the yeah, one, thousand, yeah, just one, one. That was the one, yeah, yeah. And then I was in Memphis with another white friend of mine. We went to that civil rights museum, and we got to the Emmett Till section. So they said, "Okay, now tell me who Emmett Till was." And she, she was in her sixties, so I had to take a real deep breath and not go, "You know who Emmett Till." But you know, I didn't say that. I was that's in my head. I screamed it, and but outwardly, I calmly explained her the story of Emmett Till. So we've got to share our stories. This is the one time when they're listening and they're open and they want to hear it. So let's do it. Okay. Third thing, if you like me, go to a predominantly white church, which some of us do now. You need to start having to come to Jesus with them, cause. Uh, some of them have forgot what Jesus would do and racism is not what Jesus would do. And um, they are doing some crazy stuff that looks just like what white people did back in the 60s in the church and calling it Christian. And it's not. And so we need to stop being quiet, afraid to say stuff around them, make them uncomfortable and make them a little uncomfortable because we've been uncomfortable for 400 years. Lisa, I ain't gonna let you sit up here and take over this whole show with all this. Ask you for one. Y'all got 18 things. Call Lisa for her to give you the rest. <laughs> that was just three. That, that's it. That's all. Them three. You do them three. I'm good. I'm good with you. Lisa, I always three, love talking to you. I'm blessed to be able to call you a friend and to be able to text and talk to you anytime. I'm so proud of you. I know it has not been easy, but you make it look easy. And so I appreciate you and want you to know that as much as you struggle to get the story out and you still got more to do, <laughs> I appreciate you. I so appreciate you. And, and the world appreciates you if you never hear it from the rest of them. Okay. I'm, I'm sharing the message from them. And I totally appreciate you joining us here today on the History of Being Black podcast. Thank you guys for listening to another episode. And until next time, stay safe. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and Say It Loud Network production. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.